Good evening. Welcome to the forum. Wonderful to see so many of you here tonight. Thanks for coming along. Uh, if you've come to one of our events before, or I'm just going to apologize in advance because you've heard me say this a million times. If you're new, the forum is a non-profit organization. Uh, we get philosophers in a room like this with other academics, other researchers, other thinkers, journalists, activists, politicians, filmmakers, artists, to talk about matters of cultural, intellectual, political importance um, so that everyone can have a listen in on their conversation and indeed join in themselves too. If you think this sort of thing is important, uh, please consider donating to us. We have a Just Giving link on our webpage where you can uh, donate a little bit of money if you think that what we do is important, that would be really fantastic. And if you go to the website, you will be rewarded for your efforts by finding a huge archive of podcasts from our previous events, as well as writing from contemporary philosophers on a whole range of very interesting subject matters. Uh, just a couple of housekeeping issues. Uh, please turn off the volume on your phone. Um, check. You think it's off, but it probably isn't. Uh, just to be kind to everyone else in the room. Uh, but you don't have to turn off your phone completely. In fact, if you want to tweet along, f please feel free to do so. We have our own bespoke hashtag, LSEFEP. So if uh, you want to do that, you can find us there. Um, and bear in mind that this is being recorded for a podcast as well as being live streamed, technology permitting. Um, uh, so if you do ask a question, please bear in mind your voice will be recorded and put out into the interwebs and everyone will hear you, in case that matters to you. Anyway, that's enough from me. Thank you again for coming, and I hope you enjoy our great panel tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Beth. Uh, my name's Danielle Sands, and I'm going to be chairing this evening's event, in which we will be thinking about the politics of mental health. Um, so the, the format for the event is that our three speakers, Matthew Radcliffe, Victoria Smith and Emmy Eklund, um, will all have a bit of time um, to explain their position on the topic um, and then we'll have a discussion and there'll be plenty of time at the end for you to join in with your own questions. Um, so perhaps, Emmy, you could kick off. Um, politics and mental health seems like quite a broad topic. What kind of questions and issues do you think we should be covering this evening? So, I mean, for me... I'm a political scientist by training, and uh, I think about things generally and how, what is political about stuff. So it's not just how do we experience things personally, but how what we are experiencing personally is actually part of something bigger. It's part of society and it's part of politics. And I think that's sort of my starting point and that's the lens through which I see basically everything. And when we talk about mental health and the politics of mental health, uh, I find that the biggest trend that we are seeing right now in uh, society in general is to individualize responsibility for how we are feeling. So in a sense, even though there might be structural issues or there might be structural problems that uh, relate to how we feel, there is still a responsibility on us as an individual to basically sort that out. And for me, looking at political philosophy, this is something that isn't just local to 
questions of mental health. This is, has something to do with how we view politics in general, where the individual is the main unit. It is the main thing that we want to look at when we study political structures. So in this sense, the politics of mental health is becoming a sort of expression of politics in, in general, so to speak. And I also find that this self help and responsibility is something that you see everywhere when it comes to mental health. When you look at like, um, what is the first advice that you get when you look at like the NHS advice pages for mental health? It is self-help. It is what can you as an individual do? It is how can you change your particular lifestyle in order to feel better? There is nothing almost about how are there issues that are beyond you? How are there issues that are structural, that pertain to economics, that pertain to politics or society in general that might be more important in this sense? So there's a problem with taking this approach, just focusing on the individual? Absolutely. I think that that is a lot of what we're seeing today is really stemming from this focus on the individual, but disregarding then the politics of mental health. Because when I say politics, I mean that what we are doing is to depoliticize the issue of mental health, to say that, well, it's not up for debate. It is the responsibility of the individual. That's what most people would say. And this is sort of the question that we can't really discuss then. But in fact, we should discuss it as a political question and not as an individual question. Thank you. Um, and I know your work particularly focuses on anxiety. Mm. And I know just from reading the media, I know from my own students, that there's a big issue with anxiety at the moment, mm. and we're seeing a lot of it. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about why you think that is. So I think that absolutely, I agree with your assessment here, that anxiety is something that is all-encompassing, in a sense, in our lives. I see it too, I see it in my students, I see it in my friends and family, etc. And it's become common to, to all of us. Um, but in my understanding, the causes for why we are seeing a rise in, in anxiety is not that surprising. And actually, it's not that anxiety is necessarily a consequence of what of the political system that we're living in, but it is a precondition for the political system that we are living in. That without anxiety, our world could not function in the way that it does. And this has to do with, in my understanding, capitalism in many senses. And I believe that, so why, if we look at people in general, if I look at how people live, um, people work extortionately long hours, People pay loads of money uh, to, for rent. People commute and pay loads of money for that. Why is it that we can keep up with this? Why do people feel like that is okay? And I think in my understanding that that is because you have a, such a high level of uncertainty about your situation. And that uncertainty in and of itself is part of anxiety, part of not knowing where life is going to take you. And that has, of course, material undercurrents in the sense that, well, you can say, um, it's because of the financial crisis. That's why people are feeling so anxious. But I would say that it's much bigger than the financial crisis in the sense that you have um, a whole systemic 
understanding that people need to feel that they are not going to make ends meet and they are not going to make it in order to put up with the conditions that society is putting on us right now. So it's a way of getting people to behave in more productive or apparently productive ways. Or rather in a more sort of disciplined way. I like to think of anxiety in many senses as a disciplining tool for, um, for governments in a sense, can use it actively, but it can also be something which is, is just there. It is controlling us as political subjects, if you will, or as political beings, uh, and we are thus not resisting these things that we might find pretty, pretty awful. And that, in a sense, makes it possible for the system to operate in the way that it does. So it's a way of disempowering the individual in some way? Absolutely. I think that that's, in many senses, how it works. And I think that this happens... It could happen in different ways. I mean, if you take a few examples, so how is it that anxiety can work as a political tool for a government, for instance? If we take security as a good way, I think, of looking at this, uh, everyone feels uh, or has a sort of understanding, can relate to feeling anxious about security issues. And this is something that has becomes very, very useful for governments in different countries. <laughs> Uh, we can take France as an example of a con sort of constant state of emergency where the government can implement different uh, legislative changes without going through normal procedure. And this is done with a reference of saying, well, it's absolutely necessary or else we are not going to be able to protect the population. Well, if, what is it that we want to protect the population from? What is it that we're actually scared of. Well, that's where you come back to sort of 9-11 uh, thinking about this, is what, what has been termed in many cases the unknown unknowns. We don't know. We don't know what we're scared of. We don't know what we think is going to happen that is going to justify all of these political changes. And that is precisely why this is a state of anxiety and not of fear. We're not scared of anything in particular. It doesn't have an object but it is sort of a general sense or a state of being which then justifies radical political changes in many cases. So your account of anxiety makes it sound very disempowering. Are there instances in which it can be a, a more useful political tool or... I think so. Absolutely. I think that this is... Now, you're right. I've painted a very grim picture to say that this anxious state is just controlling us and it's going to... Um, and it's used as a tool against the people or the sense against the community. Um, but in other ways, I think that we can see how anxious states can be um, sort of incitements for political change. We've seen in conjunction with what's going on with... Uh, heightened security measures with austerity measures that are also seen as necessary and we can't escape them. Uh, we've also seen resistance against this. We've seen the Arab Spring, for instance. There has been the Occupy movement. There's been all sorts of different expressions where people use this sense of anxiety in order to say, no, 
we don't accept this anymore. No, we're not going to uh, take these changes any longer. We want to see a different world. And I think that that's the sort of dual nature of anxiety, in a sense, where it can be used as a controlling tool, on the one hand, or as a power for political change, on the other. Thank you. I think we'll take a couple of questions yeah, from sure. the audience now. <laughs> Um, you, with your focus on anxiety, I was wondering um, where you see the, uh, the industry around psychotherapy uh, fitting in to uh, this sort of political framing of the problem. Um, is the there have been, you know, Freud himself was very interested in cultural change, of course, all the way up to R.D. Lang and his anti-psychiatry movement. But mm. do you, in, the psycho in psych today's psychotherapy industry, do you see a consciousness of the social um, impacting on the individual or, or not so much or not enough? So I'm not a psychotherapist. I'm just going to put that out there. But I, the only thing that I can feel comfortable commenting on in this sort of like where does the political start or end? And I think that you're right in to say that in traditional uh, psychoanalysis, in my understanding, there is this very strong focus on the individual. Um, that is true. But then, of course, there are and I'm sure that there are many people that would know this better than me, there are also forms of therapy that would recognize structural issues, absolutely. But I think that my point is not so much about psychotherapy alone, but to say that this is a mindset which is, goes much beyond psychotherapy. It goes much beyond sort of the medical realm and is sort of permeating all senses of society, if that makes sense. Uh, thanks. Um, kind of following on from that question, I'm, I, I agree with you entirely that there is quite a, a, a deceptive um, pathologization of uh, disorders like anxiety and depression. Um, and from my own personal experience, that does seem to be the pervasive um, modus operandi in clinical practice, uh, at least that's provided by the NHS. And I guess I often feel the tension between that kind of uh, personal and analytical awareness of like the, the issues with uh, clinical psychotherapy, mm. but at the same time having experience being on huge waiting lists um, and just wanting some help rather than none. Mm. Um, and so I was wondering how you negotiate one political issue, which is the individualization of arguably a societal disorder, mm. and on the other hand, the need for funding in mental health services. Right. Um, I think that this plays into a bigger question about cutting public services um, in the sense that this idea of anxiety and insecurity or uncertainty and what governments are able to do are sort of linked. Because of this sort of, we had a financial crisis and we saw many detrimental economic consequences of that. Based on, on the back of that, 
a lot of European governments, um, including this one, has said, well, we must at all costs prevent that from happening again. And the way that we are preventing that is to cutting the deficit. This is what is the universal recipe. Now, in, in economic theory, this is, an, this is one solution. This is one thing that we can do, but it's not universally recognized as the medicine that is going to fix everything. So to say that we're going to pu cut public services is one political or ideological standpoint, which, as you say then, has quite detrimental consequences for, for instance, uh, mental health care provision. Uh, so I would see that as it, these issues are linked in a sense that with the individualization of responsibility for mental health, and that in conjunction with cutting of public services is part of the same logic in a sense, that this isn't really a priority, or this isn't something that is supposed to be in the public realm. It's the private realm, and my point would be then that the private realm is always also a public realm. Thanks. I think now might be a good time to, to try and bring the idea of philosophy and what philosophy can do in here. So, Matthew, I know that you've worked on um, the relationship or what the ways in which phenomenology can help us to think about the experience of mental illness. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about phenomenology and how you think it might be useful in this conversation. Uh, yes, <clears throat> yes, of course. And the, the term phenomenology doesn't really roll off your tongue. But in a more general sense, it's just a synonym for experience. But the term is also used in a more specific way to refer to a philosophical tradition uh, concerned with the study of the structure of experience. And that tradition includes philosophers such as Edmund Husserl, Martin Heidegger, Edith Stein, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, and various others. So, okay, why, why should this be of relevance when it comes to understanding psychiatric illness? Well, if you turn to first-person accounts of severe psychiatric illness from a range of different sources, time and time again people struggle to describe profound changes in how they experience and relate to the world and other people. They'll say, it's impossible to describe. I can't put it into words. I can't understand this at all. And importantly, it's often said that others don't understand. Others don't understand the profundity of what has happened. And it also seems clear that an inability to describe, an inability to understand, a, a perceived or actual lack of empathy and understanding on the part of others isn't something separate from one's predicament. It can exacerbate suffering. And I think that the aspects of experience that phenomenology is concerned with are precisely those that are altered in psychiatric illness. So to be slightly more specific, if I try and describe my experience at the moment, just in a sort of everyday pub conversation sort of way, I might say, well, yeah, I can feel a slight dryness in the back of my throat, I can see a glass over there, lots of people there, lots of red on the back of the seats. And this isn't what phenomenology is concerned with. And amongst other things, phenomenologists say, this is a common theme in the tradition, that experience incorporates, a, if you like, a background sense of belonging to the world, incorporating a pervasive sense of reality, of being there, of being part of a world. So this isn't localised, it isn't specific. It's a kind of taken-for-granted background 
to all experience. And what we find time and time again in instances of psychiatric illness is people describing a loss of something just like this or a distortion of this. Um, People will say, I've lost something I didn't even realise existed. I'm not part of the consensus world anymore. I'm stranded on an island somewhere else. Reality has gone from everything. Um, Everything seems strangely unfamiliar, disconnected. It's as if I'm looking at the the world from behind a pane of impenetrable glass and so forth. So what I suggest, as do many others, is that you can bring phenomenology and psychiatry into dialogue. You can explore the structure of world experience by looking at how it's distorted and you can cast light on these forms of experience in a way that may have all sorts of potential applications by drawing on phenomenology. Um, And again, that may still not sound very tangible, but I think for, for all of us, the, the sense of reality, the sense of belonging to a world, waxes and wanes to some extent. And it can sometimes be helpful to focus on more mundane, everyday experiences that seem unremarkable until we reflect on them and try and study them. So an experience of jet lag, particularly if coupled with the flu or something, can leave you with this all-pervasive sense of things as not quite right, strange or unfamiliar And I'm I'm sure I won't be the only person in this room who's once or twice had a very bad hangover. (laughs) And in that kind of case, 12 cans of Stella, 2 o'clock in the morning, (laughs) then you have to be up at 5 o'clock to get to the airport or something. It is as if if the the sense of reality is diminished, as if your connection to the world is altered. So this this isn't an attempt to explain any of this, just to identify a subject matter. And what I try and do is discern the various distortions in the sense of reality and the sense of belonging as clearly as I possibly can with a hope of illuminating these various kinds of experience. And that involves addressing several interconnected themes, bodily experience, sense of self, uh, sense of time. And importantly, I think we can understand a lot by emphasising our experience of the possible. I think experience is permeated by possibilities. But more than anything else, I've come to the conclusion that the interpersonal is absolutely central. And phenomenologists are often terribly long-winded and obscure, but I think one of the most important insights in this area was summed up very nicely by J.H. Vandenberg, Dutch phenomenologist and psychiatrist, who simply said loneliness is the nucleus of psychiatry. And I think that's right. Time and time again, what is absolutely central to these forms of experience is a feeling of isolation from others that can take various forms. One might feel utterly guilty before a great crowd of indiscriminate judges. Uh, One might feel like a burden. One might feel worthless. One might feel threatened. In extreme cases, others might not look like people anymore. They look like robots, waxworks, curiously uncanny, impersonal. Or the world may appear bereft of the possibility of interpersonal connection as if one is stuck behind a pane of glass or imprisoned somewhere while the rest of the social world is elsewhere. Thank you. Um, I'm interested in, in where this takes us. So you've, you've explained that using phenomenology we can think about um, psychiatric illness in relationship with our experience of being in the world in other senses. Mm-hmm. 
Where does this take us in terms of our classification of psychiatric illness or diagnosis or the, the kind of moves we, we might want to move, go to next? Um, what okay. do we do? Well, I suppose in, in relation to, di- to diagnosis, um, uh, most uh, diagnostic, well, almost all psychiatric diagnostic categories make reference to experience. Um, and presuppose an understanding of experience and the differences between them. So if we come up with a better, better account, a more discerning account, then perhaps we can make more principled dis- distinctions. We can change classifications. But a lot depends on what we want these classifications to do. And perhaps they're just rough and ready, useful for certain purposes. Um, but if, if we want them to do any more then I, th- I think we, we need to do a lot more work clarifying the nature of the experiences involved and the differences between them. So if you take something like major depression, very, very common psychiatric diagnosis, you open the American Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and you say, okie dokie, here we go then. Um, okay, one of two symptoms, depressed mood or loss of pleasure and interest. Okay, what's a depressed mood? Hmm, doesn't say. Okay, right. Oh, and it has to be four of these other symptoms. So it's very, very thin and admits considerable diversity. And if you draw on (coughs) phenomenology and you try to offer more careful, principled descriptions of experience, you, you can draw important distinctions between very different forms of experience associated with depression diagnoses. And these different forms of experience may well be associated with all sorts of different causes and may warrant different treatments as well. So it it can't do the work on its own, but it can contribute. So you're saying that it it can add nuance to our ways of classifying and understanding psychiatric illness? It can do that. I mean, it it can, to some extent, change the way we think about psychiatric illness as well. So, So suppose... Um, I have the delusion that I'm Santa Claus. You might think of that as a specific belief that is very strange, impervious to contrary evidence and so forth. But a phenomenologist will come along and say, in fact, you have to understand this as arising in the context of a profoundly altered relationship with the world as a whole and with other people. It's not simply an isolated belief content. It is symptomatic of something much more pervasive. And something else I think is really important is that eventually you come to the relational nature of psychiatric illness. It isn't a complaint of the individual. Never, it's never just the individual. The interpersonal is always central, always bound up with the other symptoms. And from moving from the individual to the interpersonal, you also end up opening the social and the cultural and the political domain, and eventually you get to fairly similar concerns to those that you were addressing just now. Right, so that you would agree with Emmy that our um, tendency to think about uh, mental illness as a problem of the individual and to be treated initially by the individual is the wrong way to think about these kind of issues. Um, or is limited at least. And the, 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 there's no sort of simple generalisation one can make about yeah. how to treat psychiatric illness yeah. or what the causes are. Um, there's going to be considerable diversity. But in every case, I think it's fair to say that these phenomena are relational. They're embedded in interpersonal and social contexts. And what we need to emphasise is the, prof- the, the profound... that the many ways and the, the sheer extent to which we're 
affected by other people throughout our day-to-day lives in all sorts of subtle ways that often aren't acknowledged. You go to a restaurant with a really good friend. The whole place seems warming, expansive, secure. You go to the same restaurant with Hannibal Lecter and try and have a conversation. And the discomfort will not just be focused on Hannibal. the, The whole restaurant will appear differently. The possibilities on offer, the significance of everything, how your thought progresses, how you experience your body, your conversational partner, the whole scene. So all the time we are shaping and reshaping each other's experiences and on top of that we're shaping each other's self-narratives and self-understandings and then you've got to look at broader social cultural contexts so you know just just imagine for a moment instead of the normal plethora of relations that you have with other people that shape your experience and thought in various ways that maybe ground you in the world or reground you in the world when you're feeling adrift instead of that everyone appears as threatening in this generic manner you're going to lose um, a regulative structure that you're ordinarily reliant upon. And time and time again, people emphasise the theme of loss of trust, which is bound up with pervasive anxiety, again, of the kind you were discussing. It's not specific to any one diagnosis. It's much more pervasive than that. A loss of trust in the world as a whole, and more specifically other people something that we ordinarily take as given, something that's habitual, unthinking, presupposed by all of our experiences of thought, experiences, thoughts and activities. This habitual context of trusting anticipation is disturbed and replaced by a kind of all-enveloping anxiety. So when you look at something like that, it becomes really clear that this is bound up with an interpersonal context and also the, the response has to take that into consideration. If somebody is feeling profoundly insecure, if the whole social world seems unsafe, and you're sitting there saying, right, well then, that's, that's not going to help. So we can understand this at the level of the dynamics between uh, two individuals. We can understand it in terms of groups, societies, cultures, and also political structures. Thank you. I wonder if we have any questions for Matthew at this stage. Yeah, there's one over there. Hi. Um, so, as you talk about the importance of interpersonal experience for kind of wellness of mental health in the individual, um, as we see such rapid changes in technology and kind of individual experience being shared, not interpersonally necessarily, but through social media platforms, obviously we're kind of seeing through that individualization of each human experience and kind of categorization of that, kind of archiving and analoguing that on social media s- platforms, as it were. So kind of to what extent do you, do you see those, those changes? I mean, if I may, to what extent do you think mental health is affected by the fact that in order to participate in those, in those realms of social media, let's say, or techno- technology bases, to what extent do you think that in order to participate in social media, you have to consume, let's say, technology, iPhones or iPads or computers, in order to then find yourself communicating with others um, on, that, on that level and, and wh- how does that affect the individual and what space does that leave them in if they're not connecting in the first instance with others in front of them but instead 
with and the world on a different platform? It's a very interesting set of questions, and I, I, I can't give you a, a simple answer other than to say it is certainly relevant to the topic of uh, mental health. I mean, you're quite right. If you place the interpersonal at the centre of this, the relational, if you emphasise communication and connectedness and interaction or lack thereof, then you you would expect um, there to be at least some implications when our modes of interaction and relation change radically. And I suppose it's quite a popular hunch is to view this in rather negative terms. At the same time, it could be a lifeline for many people where... Um, sure, if you're, looking for, if you're looking at 400 people, maybe they look a little bit intimidating together. But for, for, for somebody who can't address a single individual without feeling perhaps threatened or deeply uncomfortable, it, it may be possible to engage in forms of interaction through social media that aren't possible in person. So one, one could look at, as I said, one could think of this as a lifeline in some cases. One could think of... Um, potential therapies that might nurse someone back into the social world. But to be honest, that's just speculation, and one can equally tell horrible tales about how people get cocooned in their bedrooms, cease to go out and enter some strange alternative world. And then, of course, there are all these tragic tales of cyberbullying and, and, and the like. So I, I think all, all I can say is it's, it's a vast subject, and I think it is highly deserving of study. And once we emphasise the interpersonal and social dimensions of mental health, it becomes even clearer that it really is deserving of study, that indeed it's quite, it's quite pressing. you take another question? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, but also, don't you think that this need for... No, more like this fear of isolation of individuals and this need to belong and for conformity in labels can alter one judgment to self-diagnose with mental health, as in mental disorders and mental illness is being, um, have become a political weapon and a political instrument more and more, and with the correlation between psychiatry and pharmaceuticals as well, using, um, as in, it's really hard to find a proof and an evidence that there's no real link between what your diagnosis, diagnosis is going to be and um, the role of pharmaceuticals and the medication that they're going to use? Um, and I think all of the language in this domain is sort of ideologically charged to some extent. I struggle with an appropriate label. I, I, I'm very uncomfortable with terms like mental disorder. I resort to the term psychiatric illness but I don't particularly like that either. Um, but sure, I mean, even without sinister pharmaceutical companies lurking in the background, you, you can't separate um, being given one of these labels. Sorry, you, 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 the, being given the label itself is transformative in various ways. You might adopt a self-narrative along with that label. Okay, so now all of these last years I understand it. It's because I have major depression, and I understand major depression in this way, and I do this because of this, and I feel this because of that. And it becomes a narrative for friends, for relatives, for others as well. And in, in certain respects, perhaps this can prove helpful, in others very damaging. And in extreme cases, um, obviously these, these, these terms... Um, uh, I, I use with extreme prejudice. I mean, there are uh, certain politicians that I'm sure everyone's well aware of who 
uh, hurl accusations of mental disorder at people as, as insults, which is astonishing in this day and age. I think we'll take one more question before we move on. I think the microphone is in the middle somewhere, yeah. Um, okay, uh, what, what's the difference between uh, sort of a, phenomenolog- a phenomenological diagnosis and sort of a conventional diagnosis, and how would you treat it differently to sort of conventional therapy? Um, and there's disagreement about this. I wouldn't say that the phenomenologist... Not the, the kind of work I do, at least, isn't directly involved in making diagnoses. I'm not offering an alternative to conventional classifications or diagnoses. I think one has to be careful about the limits of one's own expertise and not, over, not overstretch things. Um, so what I'm giving are sort of poss- possibilities for rethinking various assumptions about psychiatric illness. But you can also do quite specific things. So if you show that major depression encompasses all sorts of different things that might be described as loss of hope or despair. For example, one person may have lost hope in a lot of things, whereas somebody else cannot conceive of the possibility of ever hoping for anything again. Those are very different things. They should be distinguished. If you can give people these distinctions to work with, then I think there are all sorts of potential implications for diagnostic categories, for empathy, for therapeutic response, for distinguishing various predicaments from exploring causal mechanisms. But I'd like to sort of remain open about exactly how this will be achieved. I mean, that that said, phenomenology and psychiatry have been in dialogue quite happily for the last hundred years. So this isn't something that might happen. It's something that is, is ongoing since the time of Carl Jaspers. Phenomenologists have been making various contributions to psychiatric practice, often subtle, though. But they're there, trust me. (laughs) Thanks, Matthew. Um, I wonder whether uh, we might bring Victoria in at this point and um, begin to think a little bit about the role that gender might play in our understanding of mental illness and and mental health more more broadly. Um, Yes, I mean, I think gender is hugely important in relation to mental health and very much in relation to the issues that we've been talking about because it's something that's both political and relational. It's It's something that infiltrated every aspect of our lives. It affects how we see ourselves in relation to each other, how we understand ourselves, what we expect of our own behaviour and of other people's behaviour. And fundamentally, these ideas of what is a man, what is a woman, it affects our idea of what is, so to speak, normal, if one can talk. Well, that's a really loaded word, normal. <laughs> but, um, and I think there are several levels, sort of layers on which it affects us. So, for instance, you can, we need to look at the impact that gender norms have on mental health and how people are feeling and how they're seeing themselves. And I think this is something that we're talking about more and more, and that's a positive move in society. Um, you know, you, when we talk about gender equality and the impact of sexism on people's lives, the impact of stereotyping, we're not just talking about equality in a kind of measurable pay gap and way. We can talk about the kind of trauma that these expectations inflict on people. I mean, recently in the news we've had um, that teenage girls, particularly young teenage girls, there's a real rise in depression. And I think we need to look at the social and political context of that. It's very difficult to decide that's just an individual trend that's just arisen out of nowhere. There is some 
political aspect to this and we need to explore it. And there's a risk if we depoliticise mental health and we give someone a diagnosis and say, well, that's the problem, take these pills, take, go on the CBT, that we don't look at the broader social aspect and the broader trends around it that are affecting it. I mean, one area that I find particularly interesting is that of eating disorders and anorexia. I mean, that's something I've had experience with and I know quite a lot of people who've gone through that. And when I first experienced treatment in the 1980s, it was very much very regressive. It was understood as bad behaviour, resistant behaviour. And I think if you look back quite a long way, if you look in Elaine Showalter's The Female Malady and into how it's treated throughout the ages, there's been an idea that it's badly behaved women, resistant women, it's women who won't grow up, women who need to be force-fed, be taught to adapt to gender norms. And um, that was still, in the 1980s, very much an idea of how it should be treated. And I think nowadays we have much more sympathetic understanding that it's actually very complex and often it's related to trauma. But I think there's also been a drive to sort of go the other way, to depoliticise it, because there's this idea that if it's seen in political terms, it's seen as there's a guilt aspect to it or a blame aspect to it, or there's a way in which if you say, oh, well, that magazines and images of thin women prompt anorexia, it trivialises it. So there's then this urge to say... Um, oh, well, it obviously, it may be hereditary, or maybe it's just down to some hidden family trauma. And there's, there's kind of this feeling that you have to choose between social and political and biological. And I don't think that's necessarily helpful because you can treat someone for the physical symptoms and you can treat someone for the behavioural symptoms, but they still have to go back out into the world and interact with the world, and it's the world in which they first became ill. And if we're not going to like, put it in that context and change it, it's really hard. So you're saying there's a temptation to um, opt for a kind of one-side-of-the-nature-nurture binary when we're thinking about mental health conditions? Yes, I, th I think there really is, and it's still there. And I think even though we've known for such a long time that it's not that simple, that obviously the experiences we have, the people we meet, the position we have in society affects how we feel and how we develop this can also how we respond to those feelings is also affected by our biology by who we are by our basic constitution but also these feelings and these responses can change our biology as well and there can be a kind of cycle of this but there's been this urge still to choose between the two because making that choice is political um, I, I think if you if you sort of put things in a it's all down to experience, it's all down to nurture way of thinking. There's been, for such a long time now, an urge to blame families. I think Oliver James has kind of done this with like books like They Fuck You Up and that kind of approach to it. Sorry, that, I think, I'm sure that's what he called it, sorry. <laughs> but um, it's this urge to blame families, particularly mothers as kind of toxic parents, toxic mothers, and then if you have someone who comes along and says, actually, it's biological, actually, it's a chemical imbalance in the brain, particularly for families, it can be such a relief to think, oh, well, we'll just treat it with a pill. We can just you know, to choose to make that choice. It can feel simple, 
it can feel a way that we can manage these disorders, we can keep it very self-contained, we don't need to look at everything that surrounds it. I mean, just this weekend in The Guardian there was an article on um, schizophrenia and the relationship with immune disorders, and there was a lot of quotes along the lines of, oh, we've, we've often not talked about the relationship between mind and body, or we've seen them as separate things, but actually they're not. And it's, I think, well, we've known for quite a long time that they're not, but... Um, but I could see in that there was this real, almost delight some people have in latching on to, actually, it just needs a pill. And it can be much more complicated than that, and we need to take that into account. How, how do we take that into account? I mean, it seems like we don't really know the way these... We don't really fully understand the way the different factors play out. Um, how do we get a better understanding of those relationships, do you think? I think we need to be just really careful in how we understand diagnosis and what it does. I think particularly in what you were saying about the way in which a diagnosis isn't just a definition, it really changes mm. how a person is seen, how they see themselves, and how, what their relationship to the world is like. And we need to recognise that people who make diagnoses, they will have their own biases in terms of how they see people in terms of class, gender, race, and in what they expect normal behaviour to be. I think we often have a tendency to look back on the way in which mental health itself, the idea of it, has been used in the past to abuse vulnerable people. So, you know, you have these stories about women institutionalised because they wanted a divorce or wanted to go to university or, you know, the criminalisation of homosexuality based on the idea that it's mentally deviant. And we tend to think, oh, weren't they ridiculous in the past? We're not like that now. But we still have all these hierarchical ideas and feed into how we diagnose people and how we treat people and how we respond to them. And I think there just needs to be that awareness of it. And we need to move away both from the de desire to constantly categorise whether it's biology or whether it's social and understand the relationship between both. And also try not to focus on this idea of individualised brain, whether it's on the person who's suffering or on their immediate family, because it doesn't, I don't think it helps generally. It can be quite self-defeating. So it seems like the three of you are all agreeing to some extent that the, the focus on the individual um, in terms of the, the causes and responses to mental illness um, is, is problematic. Would you say that's... Yeah. Yes, and I think, this, <laughs> I think what you're saying about this kind of individualisation mm. and desire to keep it... It's a desire to kind of keep it tidy and mm. not see it in the broader political context is quite And not worrying. to um, attribute responsibility to other sources, I guess. Yes, and we need to know that it's not trivialised. I think one thing I've seen as well is this desire to... People, when they're diagnosed, they often want their disorder to be real. They don't want people to say they're faking it. Mm. And sometimes if you put something in a social or political context, people think you're saying, oh, it's not a real illness then. But it's, it's a real illness, but it's still it's, affected by... It's an illness of society. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't make it less of an illness. Yeah. Mm. I guess that feels harder to treat in some sense. I think so, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's also, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, gender is just another aspect yeah. of where it is very convenient for society to have a sort of, I mean, you've had a gender stereotypical idea of women which has really benefited the system that we live in. 
and it has, you know, relied on that women work a day job and then do all the housework yeah. in, without pay. That's, that's great. And of course, if you can socialize people into doing that and oppress them enough into t thinking that that is their role, that's very convenient. Should we take some more questions? Yes. <coughs> Hello. Um, okay, a bit of a general question, um, but I'm just dying to hear your thoughts. Um, as Emmy, you said, um, uncertainty is anxiety. And um, as Matthew, you pointed out that belonging to the world is part of your perception and your personal anxiety, etc. Um, I'm, I'm just interested to hear what do you think um, the role of society as we know it now, the role of um, the community and the individual relationship to spirituality and belief uh, is in in uh, what the relationship of that is to mental health um, as you could argue that sometimes the collective and the individual uh, relationship to spirituality and or belief gives you certainty and belonging so I'm just uh, general but yeah <laughs> that's my question <laughs> thank you should we take another question before we answer that one yeah, this is another one on the other side. Sorry. Um, uh, the first speaker was talking about um, uh, the relationship between the need to, to discipline society and, and anxiety. And um, I suppose this is also a general question. Um, but in, in what ways um, any of the speakers uh, regard mental health services themselves as being a reflection of that need to discipline society and having that function within uh, capitalism, you know, in what sense do, uh, is, is it the role of the mental health system and of professionals to, to maintain and reproduce capitalism and in controlling and removing uh, people who are difficult um, and how this is reflected within the power dynamics within mental health services themselves uh, in terms of the conflicts between different sectors such as management, staff, service users, etc. Thank you. Okay, so two questions. The first one was about the role of community, um, role of spirituality and belief, and the second one was about the relationships between discipline, uh, mental health services and capitalism. Big, big questions. <laughs> I, I can have a quick go at the religion and spirituality question, or a quick partial go. Um, and I, I, I don't think we can begin to answer the very broad question of whether... Uh, a godless society is more prone to mental health problems than a society where God, God is still hanging oh, around. Really? I think you should give it a go. <laughs> no, no, I'm going I'm, I'm to be chicken here. But I, I, th I think something that, that, that is very important is to recognise the different interpretive contexts in which psychiatric illness and associated experiences are framed. And so often a, a religious culture or you know, a, a religious self-interpretation can play a role not just interpreting one's experiences, but in regulating it. Whether a, a voice that one hears is seen as a, a, a sign of something gone wrong with one's brain or is interpreted in a spiritual or explicitly religious way, for, for example. So we need to look at the way these, these contexts operate. And um, also there are often clashes between the interpretive assumption interpretive assumptions of a patient or mental health service user and those of a clinician. So those are issues that should be kept in, 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 in mind. And there are also very important issues about the similarities and differences between 
for example, psychotic experiences and certain forms of spiritual experience. And there's, there's a lot to be said there. These experiences are similar in some ways, but do you really want to go so far as to say the only differences are down to the interpretation? I, mean, I, I wouldn't, but there's a long story to be told there, which I won't tell. <laughs> I can have a go at the discipline question. Um, I, I completely agree. I think that it's... Um, the important question about discipline, though, I think, is to say that it's not that mental health services providers are trying to actively discipline people in general. Yeah, sure, that, I'm sure that that happens, but that's not the only point about discipline. The most important thing about discipline happens inside of us, and that's where it is the most powerful. It is the self-disciplining practices that we go through every day to sort of conform ourselves to society and for what society regards as normal, whatever that is, that's where the true power lies, so to speak. And that's, Foucault has written loads about this um, in saying that, well, actually, this idea of discipline is just inside, inside your brain, really. And that's where it becomes also, that's the important move, right? That's a move down to the individual, that the individual not only sort of has responsibility for their own mental health, but is also supposed to discipline themselves in order to fit into a certain model. I don't know if you would say the same. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think in terms of whether mental health services mm. dis discipline the individual and control them, mm. I think they don't really have enough investment no. to do it. <laughs> you know, this mm. kind of, in some instances, I think people would like mm. more intervention in their lives and more support and are kind of left on their own. Mm. And that's where I suppose you're left to have to deal with it yourself, often mm. until it's a crisis point. Mm. Mm -hmm. Can we take some more questions? Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I just want to pick up on the... Um, the um, attributing mental illness to the individual. So I'm just thinking that there's perhaps there's a, uh, a problem is that there seems to be kind of inter an internal contradiction because um, in, in that strategy because on the one hand, if you're attributing mental illness to the individual and saying that you know it's it's kind of you're giving the individual responsibility for for their mental health. But on the other hand, there's also a big drive into you know the the whole kind of uh, narrative around mental illnesses are illnesses of the brain and um, loads of research going into finding the neurological mechanisms um, uh, that are supposed to underlie mental illness but that approach seems to um, seems to um, uh, can be perceived as excusing the individual from responsibility because it's not, it's 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 kind of um, mental illness is then viewed as a process that's occurring within uh, within the kind of an organ system of the individual that that's beyond the uh, responsibility that's outside the responsibility of the individual. So I'm just wondering, I mean, that whether you think that would be um, lead to, I guess. Um, um, to um, to sort of conceptual kind of um, between those mm. two, it seems. Sorry, like conceptual um, uh, unclarity regarding the understanding of mental illness more broadly in the public, but also whether it could be um, could 
be conflicting to service users. Thanks. And there's another question there. Which one, sorry? Yeah. Hi. Yeah, actually, I wanted to sort of add to that as well, because I think one of the things that came from the discussion with all three of you was that part of the kind of categorization of um, mental illness comes from the sense of self and kind of disengagement with the consensus world. And there have been a lot of, obviously gender was mentioned, but there have been a lot of articles running recently on the experience of BME people in the current political climate and how anxiety and fear has increased because of that. And if we sort of attribute some of this as well to some of the more structural malaise with, with the kind of current discourse around mental illness, how, how would you balance all those contradictions? Thank you. And one more question, just the lady in front of you. Um, hi. Um, thank you very much for interesting discussion. Uh, I think my question is going to be a mix of pretty much all the questions before. Uh, so uh, so I, I really like this uh, thought about anxiety and how it actually, to a large extent, helps to drive the capitalism system and the what we are calling democracy nowadays. Uh, so um, I would like to add the uh, social media uh, part into this equation and um, give China as um, China and Facebook relationship as an example because uh, the way Facebook could get back to the Chinese market was to um, comply with Chinese regulation and actually um, accept the censorship and all the other kinds of uh, uh, cooperation with Chinese government. So uh, how would you say uh, those governments and capitalistic system can actually employ uh, social media and any kinds of uh, channels uh, influencing the society in order to, uh, to maintain this constant level of either anxiety or uncertainty or the feeling to consume more or do something that is desired by the political elite. Thank, Thank you. you. I don't know who wants to go first on <coughs> any of those. I mean, I think this question about is there a tension between whether it's an individual responsibility with mental illness and whether it's or whether it's a physiological condition. I think it's very real, and it really does in fact affect the treatment that people are offered in terms of whether you. CBT, for instance, can often feel like it's um, being told to pull yourself together a little bit, whereas if you're just left with drugs, that can just f feel you've got no support on how to interact more broadly with society. I mean, my experience with um, treatment for schizophrenia for someone in my family is that, and I think a lot of people involved in psychiatry services admit it, there has for a very long time been drugs that haven't changed year in, year out, and they're kind of, they're not really treating a physiological disorder or any individual responsibility. They're just kind of like a sledgehammer, sort of squashing back the feelings and actually causing a lot of other physical side effects with it and affecting quality of life. And I think we really need to move on from that in terms of a much more mixed and flexible understanding of how these things function and operate and and again with the example of um, BME trauma and in society there is a, there are higher diagnoses of schizophrenia amongst black men and we need to look at that in terms of the experiences they have and the way in which society is 
affecting them and it's not enough to drug a certain sector of society in a way that calms their feelings but essentially keeps them from bothering other people. I think there's a, a real ethical issue with what's happening there. Well, I mean, the, I guess it raises the question of when we treat mental illness, are we treating the person with the hope of improving their experience or are we trying to do something which affects society in some way or yeah. makes them docile so they don't behave in, in ways that yeah. are not perceived as normal? And I think often the intention is to improve quality of life, but sometimes the effect is more to make someone docile and to play off physical side effects against um, mental side effects and kind of calm someone so that they're not interfering with the smooth running of production. Production. (laughs) And just some uh, follow-up remarks in response to that first question. And when it comes to focusing on the individual... And just a sort of slightly more general point, I think it, it's important to stress there's nothing wrong with emphasising the individual um, in certain cases, but rather what one has to do is conceptualise the individual appropriately, which means recognising the individual as embedded in broader interpersonal relationships, social world, culture, and so on. But it's, it's this, this issue of, um, sort of biology responsibility and so forth, I think it's very interesting to see how this actually how how these themes are taken up in self-narratives of psychiatric illness and how, again, these themes really can't be separated um, in in many cases from, if you like, the the, the illness. So I did a a questionnaire study on experiences of depression a few years ago and one of the questions I asked was, um, well, how do you understand your own depression and what caused it? And it's one, one thing that is remarkable is the sheer extent to which almost everybody goes to work to try and figure out what's going on. So some people will consult doctors, therapists, or textbooks, or their best friend who's got a PhD in something. They will draw on a range of different resources, and they will adopt various narratives, various self-understandings around their condition. And these narratives will play regulative roles, again, to varying degrees. So you will find, in cases of depression, Many people describe a string of horrible life events, but then they might say, it's because I'm weak. Or they might say, it's because of my... you know, Well, it's biological. That happens to any human being that has to endure this. Others will emphasise genetics rather than events within a life course that uh, bring about depression. But one of the, the, the most striking contrasts is be- between people who will say, it's a disease... It is not my fault. It is something that happened to me. And others will say, I'm depressed because I deserve it. I'm a foul, useless, disgusting human being, and I've got this as punishment, and it's right, and I deserve it. And that's a paraphrase of a response that I actually got. But you see several others along these lines. So you know, themes of um, worthlessness and guilt and estrangement can crystallise into more specific causal stories. Um, that have, I think, significant repercussions here. Thank you. I think we'll take some questions from near the front. Sorry to make fun. <laughs> Hello. Um, many thanks for the talk. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, I just have a few questions, I guess. Um, I strongly um, believe on the, the relationship between capitalism and mental health. I mean, 
you see studies by the Mental Health Foundation that they show the correlation between income per family and the children have, um, you know, they're a lot likelier to have to suffer from mental health. So, in terms of biology, I mean, I guess yeah, there's a plethora of issues that play a role. But um, I guess the system is is driving people. You know, like there's more stress on everybody at the moment. I guess. Um, so my my question is. Is the policy response been um, evidence-based? Because uh, there's plenty of evidence how um, economically <coughs> mental health is affecting the, what the GDP. You know, it's like 70 million hours annually are lost through mental health. So are we, are we heading towards that way to, to have a more, uh, policy, um, more evidence-based policy making? Thank you. And I think there's another question here. Uh, I think uh, so far I'm a bit shocked by the debate in terms of uh, the title is the politics of mental health and quite quickly we moved into mental illness, the idea of mental illness and then quite quickly thereafter psychiatric illness as a, as a, as a, a way of describing mental health difficulties uh, and that's kind of I need to draw attention to the power of language you know so language is very powerful and that's a discourse um, Mental, mental illness or psychiatric. So immediately that's, you know, it's, it's powerful and it's aligning oneself immediately with a biochemical, a biomedical conceptualization of mental health difficulties and that's only one way of understanding mental health difficulties. And I might add, you know, the psychiatric model uh, that rests on uh, psychiatric, psychiatric diagnoses such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, personality disorder, there's no evidence for the existence of these things as things, you know, and again, I have to be careful here because, of course, mental health difficulties exist. Of course, people hear voices and have um, extreme experiences of mood and depression and anxiety and fear and all kinds of horrendous things with which, with, with which they suffer terribly. But the idea of that these can be understood in terms of uh, psychiatric diagnosis is fundamentally flawed because there's no, I, there's no evidence, as I say, for the existence of these um, disorders as things, you know, in terms of phenomenology and Husserl describing going back to the things themselves. Um, you know, there's no evidence for their existence and the evidence is overwhelmingly indicating that um, mental health difficulties are a consequence of trauma and, um, and abuse and uh, societal, relational factors. So I'm just concerned that psychiatric illness is being used um, as the norm in, in the debate. So. Thank you. I mean, as, as I, as, as I emphasised earlier, I agree that almost all, all of the terminology in this domain is ideologically charged and contested. And I express my own discomfort with some of these terms. Could we talk impartially about mental health difficulties? Again, well, well, no, the term mental is questionable in this domain. If you look at the various predicaments that get labelled as depression, they're bodily through and through, and people will express exasperation. They'll say, well, why am I told this is mental? The, the mental is bodily. I can feel it in my bones. Um, living is a, I'm a psychologist. And yeah. Living is a well, we could talk about difficulties with living, but then we may want to be more discriminating and focus on certain difficulties in living as distinct from others. So worrying about one's bank account 
um, is very different from worrying that um, everyone around you seems terrifying and alien and you feel vulnerable before a hostile world and lacking in control. Um, Again, when it comes to psychiatry, I think it is quite right that psychiatry doesn't have the sole jurisdiction over this area of our lives and it's questionable whether it should have primary jurisdiction. Are, Are we talking about medical conditions at all here. And my own inclination is to say that if we want to have a proper understanding of this area of human suffering, we're going to have to draw on a wide range of disciplines and practice practices, and it's not going, what you're going to get in the end isn't going to be simple, and it'll probably look rather different to what we have in many, many areas at the moment. But of course, um, you can say psychiatric diagnoses aren't things, but centres of gravity aren't things either. So what we have to be clear about is what these things are intended to be these things that might not be things. So if you've got these categories, you can say, sure, maybe there is no such thing as depression. Um, Maybe there's a sort of broad resemblance between these various predicaments that are etiologically diverse and require different forms of understanding and and treatment, but this category is still useful. One can be committed to these categories to different extents and in quite different ways. So I think the first thing you have to do before questioning the legitimacy is, is look at exactly how they are being used in various contexts. For what it's worth, I think the category of major depression, for example, which is one of the most widely used, is, is pretty hopeless. And it lumps together a wide range of very different predicaments um, that for just about any practical purpose really ought to be distinguished. But I, I wouldn't... And I think that the term personality disorder is very troublesome as well. Um, I mean, something like borderline personality disorder, if you're, you're told... So that, that is often associated with awful um, interpersonal histories. So you, you've had a pretty hard time of it, and then you find yourself being told that you have all these problems because you have a personality disorder... So, you know, th- this is questionable. Uh, at the same time, I think we have to be careful not to chuck the whole lot out and uh, sort of evict the psychiatrists altogether. I think there are some very good psychiatrists and there's an awful lot of work going, going on as well. So it's just being, being critical, but at the same time doing so cautiously. I think we also need to acknowledge their function in the here and now. I mean, I would agree that schizophrenia is a complete ragtag of symptoms. It's just... A term that people, it's kind of a term that people use to chuck all sorts of different experiences into. But it's a term that I use a lot because in my practical daily life and in relationship to the person I know with schizophrenia, it's how we get medication, it's how we claim benefits, it's in our social structure, and we can't say I'm not going to use it because it's there's a function to the term right now in terms of how we access care. And although um, many people who receive that diagnosis, um, you can sometimes look at a history of interpersonal trauma, that doesn't apply in every case. So I, th- I think one has to be careful in overgeneralizing about trauma as well. This goes back to your earlier point about blaming parents, for example. Trauma often plays a role, but not always. And again, you've got a problem with the categories where very different things, and causally, and in diff- things that are different in relation to how they came about, the actual symptoms, and perhaps the most appropriate treatment are, are, are often lumped together. So this, you know, there's important work to be done here. Emmy? Right. So I think that, I think that you really hit a point there in that 
there are loads of negative connotations when it comes to mental health. And it's intentional. That's what we are seeing it as. It's a problem. And that, because it is a problem for, as we said before, for production. It's a problem for us being the sort of neoliberal subject that does what we are intended to do in the capitalist system, which is produce more value based on our labor. So yes, of course, of course it's negative. And that's also uh, has this, the function of discipline then becomes, um, it doesn't matter if it's self-discipline and individual responsibility or if it's the sort of biological disciplining of the behavior because the function is the same. The function is to get this person to be a proper person in, that can produce labor. So I think that this tension that was pointed out between, oh, is it that if we say that it's a biological illness, uh, then it can't, we, you can't say that it's an individual responsibility. I would say these are just two sides of a system that tries to create a very specific type of subject. And it will go through many different channels to do that. Thanks. There's a very patient person who's had their <laughs> hand up there for quite a while now. Charming, thank you. <clears throat> Has the panel ever felt that nobody understands, and rarely does anybody seriously try to understand, the definition of the actual term mental health and mental illness, and that um, we have no foundation to proceed upon, therefore, yet we do proceed anyway, and it's rather um, tragic and awful? Mm. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Taking a couple more, yeah. Thank you. Yes. If I may, as um, we kind of grow into treatment of mental health and um, the drugs we're using to treat them, may I ask what your perspectives are on the role of psychedelics in treatment of mental health issues? Um, having been at a talk with David Nutt yesterday and being um, interested in that sphere, um, we're seeing a rise in neuroscience of the importance of, as you were saying, Matthew, um, the role of connectivity to a community and to the universe or the you know, community of the world, should I say, um, or smaller communities, and that these can actually help assist that feeling and sentiment and that you know, use of psilocybin, uh, DMT, and... Um, other treatments previously um, have thank shown you. that they help people feel that. Sorry, thank you. I think there's another question there. No, other side. <laughs> Hi, I'm uh, very interested in what your responses might be about the role of art uh, and <clears throat> how it can be used as a treatment and the cliche of the you know, depressed creative genius, the, uh, you know, cult that's grown up around Sylvia Plath and Virginia Woolf, um, and uh, also how, can, how this becomes co-opted into the terrible things like those mindfulness colouring books um, <laughs> that went through a vogue. Thank you. Okay, so three questions, again, going back to this idea of definition, one about the role of psychedelics, and then the last one was about art and the figure of the creative genius. Do you want to go first? Right. Um, I'll start with the definition of, of mental health. I, I think there is no definition of mental health. We cannot ever... I come from a background which adheres to the 
fact that definitions are slippery by nature and a workable definition. Um, right. I, I couldn't really hear that last bit, but I think that in any case, I mean, then I will say a workable definition. What I, I don't really know what the sort of what is the blueprint or the yardstick that we measure a workable definition. A workable definition will always work for some purpose. It will never just work for everyone. It will, in my understanding, have a political purpose. It will have an ideological purpose. It has that purpose has changed over time, as we have seen in history, but it has a clear ideological function. So I think that we cannot, we, we can try to improve the meaning or the definition or the workableness of it, but we cannot fully govern it uh, in that sense. Yeah, so so it, it, it's, it's a mess, I would yeah. agree, but, <laughs> but, but, but it's not a complete disaster. <laughs> So we may have workable definitions for certain purposes. And one, one, uh, one question we might ask is, is, is the concept of mental health in any worse shape than con uh, other important concepts that are operative in society with similarly big implications? Possibly not. So I, I, again, we, should, we shouldn't throw it all out, but there are problems here. Yeah. Uh, psychedelics uh, and or art... I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by the, yeah. by the, by the psychedelics, but yeah. the, what, what, one worry I have, I mean, I don't, don't know about you, these, these stories in the newspapers often take the form of miracle cures. So with depression, first of all, it was deep brain stimulation, which turned out to be super-duper on the basis of a group of seven patients um, observed for a short while afterwards. And then I think uh, LSD microdosing is supposed to be quite effective and the most recent thing I read was magic mushrooms, liberty caps they, they, they reboot the brain or something and get rid of your depression and it, it just seems to buy into this miracle, miracle cure folklore a bit but you know obviously you know, let, let's do the research, let's take this seriously and if it works then great, my, my own hunch is that less, lessons that have been learned in relation to say standard SSRI treatments for depression will apply here which is that they're going to be more effective uh, longer term in conjunction with some form of psychotherapy for example so I, I don't think you're going to find the holy grail um, in, in some form of um, um, currently illegal drug that's quite good fun to take <laughs> it would be nice it would be very nice yeah, but yeah. <laughs> that's, again that's just, that's, that's just a hunch <laughs> okay I think we've got time for about two or three more questions I think I've been neglecting the front so maybe <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah. Um, we, can, we can come back to that. Yeah. There's been a lot of discussion about sickness in society and the inadequacy of treating the individual and the inadequacy of self-help, for example. And I'm interested in if we're talking about sickness in society, who should be the practitioners? Are you suggesting that service users should be more political, for example, mental health practitioners? people in society that care about mental health and well-being, or should politicians be paying more attention to mental health, which I think they are in certain respects. Thank you. I think there's a question on the second row as well. Uh, 
leading on from the previous question, like where do you see um, service user involvement sitting in terms of uh, the politics of mental health? Do you see it as a sort of like reformist liberal attitude uh, to take that never really makes the necessary changes or do you see it as a potentially uh, revolutionary way of looking at um, treating whatever we are referring to when we say mental health? Thank you. And I was hearing murmurings that you want the art question answered. So, <laughs> do you want to I mean, take any of those? Yeah, I, mean, I think art, in terms of, can be a great source of therapy when you're suffering from distress. But I think the whole idea of the tortured creative artist can be quite a dangerous one. And so my background is studying the German romantic, specifically E.T.A. Hoffman, and he's someone who played a lot on the idea of the tortured creative genius. And it's the kind of trope that it affects the reception of your work, it affects how you're seen as an artist. It's a kind of marketing tool in some ways, but it can sometimes have a very ne negative effect in terms of social contagion, and it can glamorise distress and trauma in a way that is actually quite unhelpful for a, in, in the long term. And I'm quite uneasy about that. And, I, and sometimes I think sort of other examples, I can think of Heinrich von Kleist, um, who committed suicide um, in 1811, and I think... That had a kind of... I can remember when I was younger and suffering from depression, I thought he was the coolest person ever until Kurt Cobain came along. And, and those kind of things are kind of quite unhealth, unhealthy, I think, the way that mental distress can become this kind of social trend or a way that a route to be considered authentic or to have your feelings and your self-expression taken seriously and we need to be quite circumspect mm. about that. Historically it relates to the gender issue as well where yeah. the, 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 the brave, creative depressed genius ends up looking suspiciously male yeah. um, and if you look at changing historical representations of depression that's an issue. Yeah. You want to respond to that quite yeah, question? So, so what I heard basically is like what is to be done? <laughs> uh, how should we move forward? Um, and I think that it's Absolutely, I think that there is a role of communities to, to take up and politicizing the issue of mental health. Absolutely. But I also think that this isn't the sort of task of specific communities that are concerned about mental health for whatever reason. It's the, the responsibility of every community is to say, like, oh, yeah, the LGBT movement should just be driven by people that identify with this and no one else should care. I mean, that's, I find, extremely unhelpful. Um, so I think it is a responsibility of, of every community to actually take up and say, well, what is it that we consider normal? What is it, do we need to work so much? So I think that a lot of the complications with government policy regarding mental health regards how much can this person work how much benefits do they need, and we don't want to give it to them. And I think that's something, if you could break the, that uh, connection, so to speak, and say, like, how much do we need to work? Well, how much does anyone need to work? Do we need to work 40 hours per week? Is that the absolute norm that is going to be true forever? And once we start talking about that, mental health can also be part of that discussion, in my opinion. 
Thank you. A very keen hands up here. <laughs> Um, thank you for the very interesting topics and discussions. Um, so my question is regarding what do you think about um, the uh, the role and the importance of mental health in education, especially the earlier the better. Um, because so I just want to give a quick example. I I read about some CBT book and I talked to my friend, mind you, very grown up. 30 years old, 40 years old, successful people about some very simple TCB technique and they're like, where have this been all my life? Like, I would have suffered so-and-so or do so-and-so crazy stuff, like go to Burning Man just to go, like pay $1,000 to go to Burning Man instead of, you know, learn about some CBT technique. Um, <laughs> so, coming back to this whole politics about uh, mental health and mental health education, not just mental illness, what do you think about, you know, so about integrating it the way it should be integrated into school, the earlier the better, or the how early, you know, wherever possible, that, that's the role for the psychiatrist, the psychologist to do. But then how should it be integrated? How, what is the government responsibility in integrating them? And how should we as citizens advocating it uh, for it to be integrated, to be used? Because I think it's super duper helpful, especially with all this talk about young suicide and you know, kid suicide and kid mental health that are going on everywhere in the world right now. Um, Thank you. Um, Thanks. Yeah. And one other question. Yeah, right there. Hi, um, I'm Takia. Thank you for your talk. Um, I wanted to draw on um, what you had said about trauma and the effect particularly in young black men. Um, I think that we see just in, in London in general itself, um, around youth violence and around, um, you know, every other day in the evening standard seeing a young black man that's been murdered by uh, some uh, another young guy or not even just black but young men in general um can you um let me know if you know if you think what you think sh could should be done in the next few as the next steps for tackling this i think there's been a lot done in terms of community projects and things like that but from a really uh, an evaluative uh, perspective or from um, social science research or from even the medical sector about how we can support this group of young men particularly. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. To look, the question of sort of educating children about mental health I think is really important as we're becoming more sensitive to children suffering distress at early ages. I think Again, there's a risk because it's such a political issue and the terminology is so political. How do you introduce this without it being a kind of how we teach children to be normal, how we teach children how they're meant mm. to feel, how we teach children not to express distress in ways that are inconvenient to us. And I think you have to tread really carefully there so that you are still allowing children to behave as children, not as yeah. sorted. because we try to teach people how to be good worker, we try to teach them trade, and then we integrate physical health to be more healthier. Mental health is just going to be related to physical health. It should not be about philosophy and about philosophy of life. It's just very simple kind of approach techniques. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure how, how sim simple it can be, but I mean that there are issues of concern, not just the ones you've mentioned. There's, there are increasing concerns about drug companies 
um, scoping a potential market here in increasingly young children. But also, I mean, I find even sort of very, very nice, very well-meaning parents are sort of often itching to get a diagnostic label and um, wonder whether the, the, the whether it applies to their child. I think that there, there are all sorts of issues here we have to be very careful of. But, of course, you know, at the same time, you don't want to neglect the fact that, there, that many children endure, endure severe preventable distress, which is neglected or made worse by social conditions and which has significant long-term effects in many cases, which could be prevented. So, obviously, that needs to be looked at. And so, sadly, you know, very young children don't tend to be that empathetic. So, um. I'm sorry, we don't have time. Emmy, last word goes to you. Does it? Yep. Excellent. What am I supposed to talk about? <laughs> um, no, I think, I think I would agree uh, with Matthew in saying that it's, it's an extremely complex issue if we're talking about uh, children and education. But, I mean, it's still, if we see it a little bit higher up, perhaps, and not small children, if we look at education now at, at university level, for instance, I think that there is, there is a lot to be done. Uh, I think that services are very underfunded, generally, in my personal opinion. Um, and also, I think but it, university life has changed from what it is now, from what it was maybe 30 years ago, or even just five years ago, in this country at least, because of the fee structure. So, yes. Is there more to yes. be done? For sure. Yes. <laughs> uh, apologies to those of you who didn't have a chance to answer your questions. I'm sure the speakers will uh, hover around the front. You can come and ask them. Um, thanks very much for coming. Join me in thanking our speakers again. Thank you.